Okay. This week's parsha um, starts off with what seems to be, or what clearly is, a very depressing and sad uh, reality. That is the passing of Sarah, passing of the first Jewish woman, the wife of the first Jew, Avram. Sarah passed away. Why did she pass away? The end of last week's parsha is actually a story we were discussing right before the class, the story of the Akedah. Avram was commanded by God to bring Yitzchak as an offering on a mountain that he will show him. So the story is that, uh, that Avram woke up early in the morning and he packed everything up and he took Yitzchak together with Ishmael and Eliezer and they, and they set out even before they were able to tell Sarah where they were going. And so Sarah asked, she, she asked her, she was trying to figure out where her husband and son went. And at one point she approached one of the giants that lived in the, in the area of Hebron. And she asked him to stand up and kind of survey the area. And he, he looks and he says, oh, I, I see something very interesting. I see Yitzchak is bound on top of, a, top of an altar and Avram is holding a knife on top of him. So obviously her heart dropped, like what's going on? Um, and then he said, oh, I see something else happening. I see that Avram did not kill Yitzchak. In fact, he took Yitzchak off of the altar. So her heart kind of went back up and that, that caused a, a lot of, you know, the, you know, the, the, the terrible news and the, the great news that came all of a sudden, it caused her to die. Uh, so that's why the story of her passing comes right after the story of the Akeda, the story of the binding of Yitzchak. Uh, but interestingly- hey, enough, Talmud, where did the story come from? Comes from legitimate Torah sources. Yeah, I'm sure. Is it Talmud, it's a Midrash? I don't know exactly which, if, you, if you'd like, I could look up the exact source, but uh, as we say in our circles from legitimate Torah. Okay. All right. So, um, so we have uh, Sarah dies, and the first part of the of the parasha deals with the burial of Sarah. Avram realizes that he doesn't have a Jewish a, a Jewish cemetery. He has to he has to purchase a cemetery, uh, a place for her to uh, be interred, and he couldn't find just any place. He determined that he wanted to have the cave of Machpelah, which he knew by tradition. Good afternoon, Clara. Good to see you. Good afternoon, Rabbi. Just made it. Just made it. Okay. Perfect timing. We're just starting. Yeah, I know. We were visiting Elena, and I came running back so I could have go into the class. Well, we're glad to have you. We're glad to have you. Um, yeah. All righty. So Sarah, Sarah died, and Avram needs to find a place to bury her, and he purchases the cave of Machpelah, which he, had, he knew by tradition and also by divine, obviously by divine inspiration, that this was the cave in which Adam and Chava, the first man and woman, were buried. Uh, so that's the first section of the parasha. And then after that, we learn the story of Avram sending his servant Eliezer, whom we spoke about before the class. He sends Eliezer on a mission to find a wife, to find a shidduch of Ashert for Yitzchak, for his son. And um, his efforts are blessed, and he brings Rivka back from faraway land, from Padan Aram. He brings her back, and Yitzchok marries her. All right. So the theme of the entire parasha is post-Sarah. Sarah's death, burial, and now the fact that Yitzchok is looking for a wife, whom at the end of the parasha tells us that once he married Rivka, that's when he was fully consoled, comforted uh, for the passing of his mother. So the entire parasha is talking about a world without Sarah. And yet, the name of the parasha, and the first verse, the first name, the first words of the parasha is 
And this life of Sarah, Chaye Sarah. Uh, so let's go to page three, source one. I hope everyone here got the, got the handout and the email. And the life of Sarah was 100 years and 20 years and seven years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Now, this is a peculiar way of describing a number of years. Why don't you just get to the point? Say it was 127 years and that's it. Uh, this is not the first time that the Torah gives us ages. Uh, in fact, uh, a whole chapter in Genesis, a whole chapter in Noah talks about uh, Adam and his son, and his grandson and the great-grandchildren, um, how old they were when they had children, how old they were when they died. And it sounds very simple. And this person was uh, 70 years old and had a baby, had a boy. This person was 250 and he died. This person was 969 and he died. This is the first time where the Torah gives us an age of a person and said 100 years, 20 years, 7 years. What's going on? What's the issue? So Rashi, right away on the spot, he says, there's a message here. And the message is that all her years were perfect. How so? When a child is seven years old, when a girl is seven years old, they're naturally beautiful. They don't need to have makeup or any type of stuff in order to make themselves beautiful. Just as long as they don't have chocolates, you know, smudged all over their cheeks. They're beautiful. They're beautiful little kids. You know, you'll send them down the aisle during a wedding, you know, without putting even a little bit of lipstick or any type of, uh, uh, any type of um, uh, beauty uh, that doesn't have to be applied to them because they're naturally beautiful. Sarah, her entire life was naturally beautiful, like a seven-year-old girl. Obviously, it matured and became even better and better. But the idea is that Sarah never needed to add any type of beauty to herself. Her beauty at 127 was as pure and pristine and perfect as a seven-year-old girl. Then we get to the age of 20. Uh, today, after the giving of the Torah, so the age of what's called... You know, the, the, the Talmudic uh, description of that age is the age of punishment. When does a person become responsible for their, for their actions? So for a girl, it's 12, and for a boy, it's 13, bar and bat mitzvah. But before the giving of the Torah, the age was 20. Until the age of 20, people were considered kids. They were considered uh, not responsible for their actions. Once they were 20, that was like the bar and bat mitzvah of, of a Jew today. So until the age of 20... Sarah was free of sin, just like a bat mitzvah girl. When she turns 12, she's free of sin. A bar mitzvah boy, they turn 13, they're free of sin. So until 20, Sarah was free of sin, was free of any type of uh, responsibility for any negative things in her life. And the message here is that when she was 100 years old, she was free of sin as if she was 20 years old. So when the Torah tells us the life of Sarah, it says she was 100 years and 20 years and 70 years, it's making an emphasis on what those years represent. Seven represents natural beauty. 20 represents being clean of sin. And so the message here is that Kulan Shavin Latoiva, as Rashi says, all of them were equally good. Why is that important for us to know? So that we should be convinced that Sarah was a great woman. So uh, like everything in Torah, it's a lesson for us. Let's, let's continue with uh, the Rebbe's words here. The Torah's teaching regarding the life of Sarah, that they were all considered equally good, is meant to serve as an example for future generations. In other words, each of us has the ability to achieve this level in which all our years will be equally good. So we have to now learn from Sarah. We have to learn from Sarah's way of life of how to achieve a reality where all of our days are good. How was this expressed in Sarah's life? 
in the end of the Torah portion, we read that throughout Sarah's lifetime, her candle would remain lit from one Shabbat Eve to the next. Her dough was always blessed and a cloud was always attached to her tent. All right, let, let's see what this means. How does this, how does this encapsulate the life of Sarah? What, what, is the, what is the source for such a thing? So skipping from the beginning of the parasha to the very end of the parasha, almost, almost the very end, we learn about uh, Eliezer uh, returns home, returns to Avram's camp together with Rivka, who is going to be the future, who is the bride and the future wife of Yitzchak. And so source number two, the verse tells us, Isaac Yitzchak brought her to the tent of Sarah, his mother, and he took Rebekah and she became his wife and he loved her. And Yitzchak was comforted for the loss of his mother. Um, so what, why was he comforted for the loss of his mother? So let's look at the Midrash. Isaac brought her to the tent of Sarah, his mother. All the days that Sarah was alive, a cloud was connected to the entrance of her tent. When she died, the cloud stopped resting at her tent. When Rebekah came, the cloud returned. All the days that Sarah was alive, there was a blessing in her dough. And what, what it means, okay, blessing in her dough means that when she would cook, when she, when she would prepare a dough for bread, uh, the blessing is basically the bread that everyone ate always filled them. There was always enough for the guests. There was always plenty, okay? Um, it's not like bread fell from heaven. Sarah still had to prepare a dough on her own, but the dough that she prepared was always blessed. There was always plenty of it, and it was always... Um, it was always uh, filling, and it was always it was always blessed within everyone's stomach. Uh, all the days that Sarah was alive, there was a blessing in her dough. When Sarah died, that blessing ended. I guess they had to <laughs> had to bake more bread or something like that. When Rebecca came, the blessing returned. All the days that Sarah was alive, there was a candle that would burn from Shabbat Eve to the next Shabbat Eve. Right? Uh, we've learned several times in the past that our sages, I'm sorry, that our that our patriarchs kept the entire Torah, including Shabbos. And what is one of the important laws of Shabbos? That you should light a candle, you should light a Shabbos candle to welcome in the Shabbos. We'll see soon that there's actually a very specific reason why we light candles uh, in order to greet the Shabbos. So clearly, Sarah also lit candles in honor of Shabbos, and this candle that she would light on Erev Shabbos, on right before Shabbos began, this candle would continue to burn all the way until the next week. Then it would go out Friday afternoon, and she would light it again. It probably she would have to fill it up with oil, etc. You know, this might this might be reminiscent of the, the miracle of Hanukkah, that they put in the oil that was enough for one night, for one day, and it burned eight days a night. So seemingly, Sarah's candle did the same thing. If she put a took a candle and put enough oil in there to burn for seven days, that's not a miracle. That's not something that would stop when Sarah died. You just put in the right amount of oil. Clearly, she put in the amount of oil that would be necessary for the night of Shabbos, and that candle continued to burn until the next week. Yeah, all the days that the Sarah was alive, there was a candle that would burn from Shabbat Eve to the next Shabbat Eve. And when she died, the candle stopped burning for so long. When Rebecca came, the week-long flame of the candle returned. Mind you, Rebecca was three years old. She was a three-year-old girl when she came there. That's a whole separate discussion. Did she get married at three or not? That's a separate story. But clearly, uh, the story of Eliezer bringing Rebecca back to marry Yitzchak to be his bride she was three years old. So a three-year-old girl was able to fill the place of Sarah Imenu, uh, who had already died. She was at 127. And what, were, what was the hallmark 
of Sarah's life? When did Yitzchak know that this is truly his wife who can bring him comfort after the loss of his mother when he saw that these three blessings returned with her? The klada was above the tent or connected to the tent. Um, the blessing in the dough and the miracle of the candle. The fact that the candle burned from Erev Shabbos, it continued to burn until the next uh, Shabbos evening. Okay, so now we know what Sarah's life is all about. The life of Sarah, which was kulam shavin the table, that all of her all of her years were 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 good and perfect. They were beautiful and free of sin. They were all expressed in these three ideas: the fact that there was a cloud above her tent, the fact that there was a blessing in her dough, and the fact that um, that her candle burned throughout the week. So, what does this all mean, and how does this apply to us? So, let's continue on page five. Since Avram and Sarah didn't live in one location, but rather wandered from place to place, they lived in a tent instead of a house made of wood and stone. The purpose of the tent was simply to protect them from the sun and rain. God then placed a cloud on the tent, which signifies additional protection. In other words, at first they built themselves a man-made shelter, and afterwards, God added a shelter of his own, the cloud. So a person can't just walk outside and say, you know what? I'm not going to make myself a house. I'm not going to make myself a tent. God's going to find a way to protect me. No, no, no. You got to do your part. You have to build yourself. You can't build yourself a house because you know that you're a wanderer. You're a nomad. No problem. You know, you're going to be moving from place to place. So don't purchase a home. But you have to do what you can in your circumstances in order to protect yourself from the elements. So you do your part. Once you do your part, God will provide whatever he is capable of providing, which is obviously far better and far more superior than what you're able to provide. Let's talk about the dough for a moment. Avram and Sarah were exceptional with regard to the mitzvah of welcoming guests. As we read in last week's Torah portion, Avram slaughtered three cows for just three guests. Why? To serve each one from the choicest section, the tongue. By the way, that doesn't mean that he threw away the rest of the cow. I'm sure he, he, had, he had a lot of people to feed. The point was that he wanted to have fresh tongue for each one of the guests. So he was willing to slaughter three separate cows. What he'll do with the rest of the meat is a separate question. I'm sure he, he knew what he was doing. But he was so uh, hospitable and he was so good and kind to the people that came to his tent that he was even willing to slaughter three cows in order to have three separate fresh tongues. And Sarah prepared baked goods with high quality flour, no doubt in great quantity. Nevertheless, it was still limited to human proportions. But then God added a blessing of his own. Her dough became blessed, and a blessing from God is unlimited. How that expressed itself, perhaps, you know, she would make as much dough as possible in order to have a lot of bread. And let's say there were more guests that came in. Somehow the bread never ran out. Somehow she was never missing dough in order to bake uh, fresh bread. Dough was always available. Now, did you wake up in the morning and say, I'm not even going to bother buying flour and preparing the dough, etc. No, no, no. She did her part and she took the best flour. She took the best flour and she made a big dough. Once she did her part, God blessed the dough and ensured that there would be plenty for all of the guests and that the guests should be satisfied and happy with the dough, the bread that Sarah was, was uh, preparing for them. <clears throat> Let's talk about the candle. On page six, despite the greatness of Sarah, of, of Sarah's Shabbat candles, they were limited by their physical constraints, right? No matter how 
you know, how saintly one may be, at the end of the day, when you take a wick and you put it into oil and you light the wick, that the fuel is going to burn up. It's going, it's going to be exhausted at one point. So even though Sarah is a great sadekas, she's a saintly woman, any candle that she would light has the limitations of a physical candle, a physical flame. Then God gave this candle the ability to be unlimited by keeping the candle lit till Friday night when she would light it again, thereby ensuring that it remained constantly. The only reason it would go out right before Shabbos was to give Sarah the opportunity to earn that eternal light through personal efforts. You know, if, if I already turned on the light and it's just going on this divine energy, so why does it have to go out on Friday? Does God only have the power to keep a flame going for seven days? That's it? That's when his battery runs out? No. God can keep it going forever. But God wants that, you know, just like we spoke about the tent and the dough, we have to put in our two cents. We have to put in our efforts, the human efforts, the limited efforts. And once we do our part, God blesses our efforts. In other words, all of Sarah's personal mitzvot, notwithstanding their own greatness, were amplified by an additional blessing from above, which gave them an eternal nature. So what does this teach us? As said earlier, the stories of our forefathers in the Torah serve to teach and empower us. Every Jew inherits this power from our forefathers, an inheritance which is carried through the generations. When we invest effort to do our part, God gives us his blessing, bringing our work to much greater heights. Our sages say, when you will labor, the Hebrews, yagata, umatsata, tabim. When you will labor, you will find success. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about this idea here. When we invest efforts according to our capabilities, we find success. In other words, the result is like an unexpected find, which we didn't work for at all. God gives us blessings that are incomparably greater than our own efforts. You know, if, if you have $10 in your pocket and you want to go and buy I don't know, something that's worth $10. And you go into the store and you find, uh, let's say, I don't know, a, a, a package of markers, you know, a nice, nice markers for $10. Are you going to run around and say, wow, look at this find. I came to the store. I had $10 in my pocket and I went to the marker aisle and had markers there for $10. Look at this. What a find. You're never going to do that. Why? Because that's what you expect to find when you go into a store, right? However, let's say you walk into the store, you only had $10. And when you get there, it turns out that they're selling a television for $10, for whatever reason. And they sell it to you for $10. You give them the $10 and they give you a receipt and you walk out with this beautiful, large screen. You can be sure you are going to be beside yourself with joy. This is a find. Ametzia, right? That's what we say in Yiddish. It's not really a Yiddish word. It's a Hebrew word. Mitzia means this is something that you found you weren't expecting. You know, if you go if you go to the to, to the beach, and you find some seashells, whatever that's what you expect to find on the beach. But if you rub your toes in the sand, and all of a sudden you find a golden necklace that's worth five thousand dollars, that's a find. By the way, if you find anything on the beach, it's yours, according to Jewish law. If you find anything in the sand, whoever lost it gave up on it. There is no way that they will find it. So if you go to the beach and you start finding stuff, it's a real mitzia. So you didn't work on that $5,000 necklace. It's just a find. I looked for it. You didn't look for it. You didn't know what you were looking for. 
right? So the Talmud tells us that if you are going to put in your efforts, not only will your efforts uh, be successful, it doesn't say yagata vihitzlachta. Hitzlachta, you'll have hatzlachai, you're going to have success. You put an effort and you'll succeed. No. It says yagata, if you're going to put an effort, matzata, you're going to find, it's going to be as amazing and, and exciting as if you had not even put any work into it. In other words, the results of your efforts are going to be incomparably greater than your efforts to the point that you can't even associate the find with the effort. There's no real relationship between them anymore. Just like if you take a candle that's supposed to burn for two hours and you light it and it burns for seven days, that's got nothing to do with your two-hour wax. Right? This doesn't make any sense. There's almost no relationship between the flame that's able to burn for seven days to the effort you invested by purchasing enough wax that's able to burn for two hours. So what's the message here? The message that Sarah teaches us is, this is the first one that we're going to uh, glean from this, from this uh, story of the Torah, is that when, that a Jew needs to invest. You need to build a tent. You need to prepare a dough. You need to light a candle. And when you will do it the best that you can, God will bless your efforts to the point that it will be a real mitziah. It's going to be something that you will not be able to explain how that's even possible. So this is part of the beautiful and perfect and wonderful life that Sarah had. She had to invest. She invested effort, a lot of effort. But God ultimately was the one that blessed those efforts. Okay, so, so this tells us a general point, which is not necessarily associated with dough or a tent or a candle, right? These are just a general concept. You invest effort, you work hard, God will bless your efforts. But now the Rebbe is going to explain that these aren't just random ideas, bread, shelter, light. There's a message here. Sarah is communicating to us. The life of Sarah is teaching us what are the essentials for a good life. All right. So here's, here's the rate we're going to talk about the essentials for a good life. Um, so in a physical sense, in a physical sense, you could say, well, the tent represents the need for shelter. Everyone needs shelter. The worst thing is to be homeless, right? To not have a roof over your head, that's like, that's an existential threat. That's pretty bad. You don't do that. You don't spend the night without a roof over your, without a roof over your head. And you need to have food. You must have food. Without food, you can't, you can't really survive. What's the deal with light? Can we survive without light? I can't hear you, Clara. You're on, you're on mute. Well, we can survive without light. But, but, we cannot survive, but we cannot survive without fire. Oh, you say without heat. In other words, to keep us warm. Not only warm, to cook our food. Okay, okay. But, but what's interesting is, is that the, the, the miracle that was associated with Sarah was not about the fire under her kettle, right? It wasn't about the fire in her kitchen or about no. the fireplace, it was about the candle, right? It was a candle that specifically is about bringing light to the house. Um, well, that's hope, probably. Oh, oh, very good. You, 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 got, you got a very, very good, uh, you got a head start here. Definitely. But it, it's interesting. It's interesting. Just, just before we get into this, I, I, I want to give a certain perspective to this Shabbos candle. Jewish law 
defines the reason why we have to light a candle on Friday night. Um, you know, we always talk about it, that that's the way we welcome in the Shabbos. There's actually a very pragmatic reason why we have an obligation to light a candle Friday night. That is that in the good old days, when there was no electricity, right? Don't you remember those days? It was wonderful. There was no Zoom. There was no social media. There were no cars. And there was no electricity. You didn't have any lights, nothing. Okay, so what would happen by night? If you didn't have a candle, you sat in the dark. This is fact of life, right? So in the winter, by 4.30, 4.30, there was nothing else to do besides so go, go to sleep. That's it. All right. On Shabbos, we have an obligation. When Shabbos comes in, we can't just go to sleep. We have an obligation to celebrate Shabbos. At night, there's a Kiddush we have to make, right? So we have to make Kiddush on wine. We have to have two loaves of bread and make the hamotzi, and we have to have the finest food, etc. Imagine doing all of that in the dark. Nah, doesn't make any sense. But besides for that, since we have to have a Shabbos meal, so first of all, it doesn't make sense to eat. In other words, eating in the dark is not very pleasurable. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. But in addition to that, since we have to have a meal, so no one's going to sleep yet, that means we're all in the house. It's already dark and we're going to be up for another half hour to an hour. When people are awake in the house, that's completely dark. You know what that's a recipe for? So soup on your lap. Soup on your lap and bumping into each other and falling over. And that's a recipe for disaster. That's a recipe for fighting. That's a recipe for tension. A, lot, a recipe for a lot of things. And therefore, our sages tell us that it's a mitzvah. It's a religious obligation to light candles in the house on Shabbos. Not only so that you should enjoy the food that you're eating, but so that there should be peace in the home. You shouldn't fight with each other. You shouldn't spill the soup on the lap. You shouldn't bump into each other. The light of Shabbos is specifically there in order to bring light. It's not about heat and it's not about cooking. The, the Shabbos candle is specifically about light in order that we should be able to see what's going on. So here's a very interesting thing that we're going to be seeing here. The Rebbe analyzes this. Sarah's life, we want to talk about what, how do you, you know, how do you uh, express the perfection of Sarah's life and the three main necessities of people. Number one, you need to have shelter. Number two, you need to have food, sustenance. And number three, you must have light. And what does this all represent? What does this represent to all of us? We can, okay, so let's go on page eight. We can also explain the significance of the three miracles. Not just that they're miracles, but they're specifically these three. A human being's needs are generally split into two categories, internal needs and external needs. There are things which a person imbibes in his body like food, and there are needs which are not absorbed in the same fashion, but rather serve their purpose in an external way, such as clothing or even more externally, a house. But they're all necessities. These aren't, these aren't, uh, these aren't extras. These two categories are represented in the dough and the cloud. Dough, which is used to make bread and food in general, represents the inner category, that which we absorb in our bodies. The cloud on the tent represents the external category, that's, that which protects us from, you know, from the outside. So this is in a very physical, materialistic fashion. But what does this all mean internally? What does this mean in our service to God? These two categories, as applied to our service of God, the internal form is when we serve God on an intellectual basis, with all your heart and with all your soul. 
And the external form is when we serve God with all your might. In other words, when we try to grow out of our limitations. Or let, me, let me just explain what this, what this means. There are mitzvahs that we do that we understand why we're doing it. So let's say there's the, the mitzvah, let's say the mitzvah of Shabbos, right? A person decides, uh, they, they understand and appreciate the concept of Shabbos, and therefore they take upon themselves to grow in their Shabbos observance. They're going to do one little, you know, they're, they're going to turn off the phone for an hour or turn off the phone the entire Shabbos or whatever whatever it's going to be that they're going to do in honor of Shabbos. And that's a very legitimate way of, 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 of honoring and respecting the Shabbos. Um, so this is what we would call internal. You understand it, you appreciate it, you want to grow in it. You feel in a certain intellectual connection with Shabbos. But then there are some mitzvahs that actually, they don't really make any sense. I mean, take a grown person, who, a grown man who did not have, who was not given a circumcision at eight days old, and decides he wants to have this conne connection to God, and therefore he's going to do the circumcision. It's hard for him to understand why he's doing it. He says, the reason I'm doing it is because I'm a Jew. It's something that kind of, that, that, um, that transcends their own intellectual capacities. However, however, it's all something that comes from within. It's all something that I'm able to do and it's related directly to me. I change. I'm doing a mitzvah, whether I understand why I'm doing it or whether it's above my understanding. Now, these inner and external categories are fulfilled by the person. And once he invests his own effort, God gives him additional blessings from on high providing his efforts with the eternal power of God. That is represented in the blessing of the dough and the cloud on the tent. Every time that we do a mitzvah, every time that we invest our efforts in doing the mitzvah, we will see that God is going to lend his blessing to that mitzvah as well. And that's represented in the idea that Sarah would bake dough. She would prepare for achnasat orchim. <coughs> and God blessed the dough. We have to do our part in doing a mitzvah, and God blesses those efforts. Um, and even if it's something that transcends our understanding, it's not something that we could absorb internally. It's something that's more, you know, external. It's more the essence of our soul that's pushing us to do something that also we have to invest our own efforts in doing so. And God is going to lend his blessing to that and give it uh, that eternity that comes together with the divine blessing. But now let's talk a little bit about light. So we understand that yeah, we have to learn Torah, we have to do mitzvahs, we have to behave Jewishly, we have to live lives as, as Jews. But what's the light all about? It would seem that if you have shelter and you have food represented by the mitzvahs that you do intellectually or even the mitzvahs that you do just because you're Jewish, even though you don't understand it, even though you can't necessarily relate to it, it seems to be that there is a third element here. And as Clara mentioned, Marachaya mentioned that light, that represents something that's kind of beyond food, beyond shelter. There's something more to life than just the bare necessities. There's more to life than just surviving. In other words, there's more to Judaism than just surviving. Mitzvahs in Torah, that's Jewish survival. That's in order to keep Judaism going. But there has to be something that has to, that, that there's a third element here. There's a third element that takes survival and transforms it into true life. Like the famous question the rabbi would always ask us, are you alive because you're alive or are you alive because you weren't hit by a truck? Okay, so 
alive because you weren't hit by a truck means that you're eating well and you're sheltered, you're doing mitzvahs, you're doing all these wonderful things. But are you alive? Is this real Jewish life? Is that is that real Jewish life pulse, pulsing through your veins? All right, so uh, page nine, the bottom. The significance of the third miracle, the candle that remained kindled throughout the week. The candle does not create anything new. When someone lights a candle in a room, nothing changes in the room itself. The only difference is that before the candle was lit, the room was dark and nothing was visible. And by lighting a candle, we gain the ability to see with clarity. The same is true in our service to God. The Talmud, as cited in Hasidic teachings, explains the verse, mitzvot are a lamp and Torah is light. So the Talmud explains, this is a parable to a man walking in the blackness of night and the darkness. And he is afraid of the thorns and the wild animals which he cannot see due to the darkness. And he does not know which way he is walking. If a torch of fire comes his way, he is safe from the thorns. Once the light of dawn rises, he is safe from the wild animals. In other words, darkness represents the inability to evaluate oneself and the inability to discern between good and bad, sweet and bitter, etc. Therefore, in addition to the dough and the cloud, serving God with our understanding and beyond it, there also needs to be a candle being lit. We need to illuminate our lives with the source of light in the Torah the study of the inner dimension of Torah. And this always brings to mind the, the, the story I always like saying, you've probably heard it from me several times. There was once two, two men in a dungeon. The dungeon was pitch black. And every day uh, they would throw food down into the dungeon. And after a while, the men became quite proficient in finding the food and kind of eating it. They, they figured out how to do it in the darkness. One day they get a friend, a third guy is thrown into the dungeon. Okay. And the next morning, or whatever, they send down three portions of food. So the two of them, they eat. And the third one says, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I don't know what to do, I'm hungry. He says, why don't you eat? He says, I can't eat. And they give him the portion, he's trying to eat, try as he might, he can't figure out how to eat in the darkness. So one of them took pity on him. He said, if this guy is not going to eat, he's going to die. He's going to starve to death. So he started to work very hard to try to train him how to eat in the darkness. And hours and hours are passing. He's trying and it's not working. So he turns to his friend and he says, hey, dude, don't you care about this guy? He's going to die from starvation if we don't teach him how to eat. And why am I the only one investing efforts and in trying to, you know, teach him how to eat? So he said, you fool, I'm trying to get away out of here. In other words, it's not about learning how to survive in the darkness. We have to learn how to get light. We have to learn how to get outside of the, of the, of the, of the prison. When a person has food and he has shelter, but there's no light, there's no hope, there's no real direction, there's no purpose, there's no destination, you're going to go around in circles, you're going to bump into walls, you're going to fall over tables. Not only that, look even further. The, ne the next, um, I'm sorry, the next paragraph here. The Shabbat candle, uh, on page 11, the Shabbat candle was instituted to maintain the peace in the home and to help us avoid conflict, right? As we mentioned earlier, that's the halachic reason for lighting the Shabbos candle. There's something profound here in the idea of avoiding conflict. On a deeper level, there can be at times a conflict in your service of God. You might agree that certain things should be dedicated to God, but in other areas, you might maintain that they are unrelated to God. 
and you can do as you please. In other words, sometimes even when a person learns there and does mitzvahs, there is still a tension in their lives. There's a tension. I have my Jewish hour and then I have my regular hour. And those hours are at conflict with each other. There's a conflict between my Jewish self and then my regular self. And that is a conflict. It's a problem. There's tension in my life. So what do we need? Um, in order to avoid such conflict in your service to God, you need to ensure that you have a lit candle. There needs to be light in life. Simply put, a Jew can study Torah and do mitzvot his whole life without light, with no life and energy. He must light a candle. He must have a passion and a service to God. That is accomplished by studying the inner dimension of Torah, the Torah's light. And it needs to be lit from, uh, so, so in other words, the Rebbe saying, you know, people would ask me, and it could be that you've experienced this also with these, with these teachings. People always ask, you know, what's unique about the Rebbe's way of teaching Torah? There are many Torah teachers throughout history. And even in our generation, there are many Torah teachers that teach brilliant ideas in Torah. But the one, the one unique idea that, that emerges from the Rebbe's talks always, whenever, whenever we read them and anything that I've, I've read from the Rebbe is the clarity. Not the clarity in the subject matter, but the fact how every single Torah discussion leads to the very same conclusion. A certain clarity in life. There's a destination. There's a purpose. There's no tension in life. Everything surrounds the same idea. And I'm not going to lose myself as a result of focusing on this idea. That's the idea of light in Torah. Bringing the teachings of Chassidus into our life, which wouldn't necessarily change the specific mitzvah that we do. Someone could say, look, I already wear tefillin, I already have a mezuzah, I already light the Shabbos candles, I'm already learning Torah. What do I need to have that inner dimension of Torah in my life? And the answer is because we could do all of these things and still have conflict in our lives and still feel that the mitzvahs that we're doing are, in, are, in, are, 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 are constantly in conflict with the other parts of our life. And the gift of Chassidus, the gift of the candle, the light of Chassidus, the inner dimension of the Torah, is that it illuminates our lives to see how Judaism is not here to distract us from our regular life. On the contrary, the more we avail ourselves to our Jewish self, the more we bring Judaism into our lives, the more the regular parts of our lives are more uplifted, are happier, are more at peace, and there is no more conflict left. And it needs to be lit from one Shabbat Eve to the next. It can, in other words, you got to have light all the time. It's not enough to have a little taste of light at the beginning of the week or once a day. There has to, the candle has to constantly be burning. And if I may add, you, you have to light it. You have to, you, have, you know, the, the candle is there. Chassidus is out there. It's translated into all languages. It's available. But we have to, we have to light our own candle. We have to avail ourselves to the teachings of Chassidus. And when we do so, that brings true light and harmony into our lives. Let's just uh, conclude here with Rebbe's words. This candle needs to remain lit constantly, no matter what level he attains. He must continually strive to serve God with additional light, enthusiasm, and passion. It's not enough to have shelter. It's not enough to have food, nutrition. Mm -hmm. We need to have light. We need to have inspiration. As Marachaya said, we need to have hope. The only way you have hope is if you have a destination. If you know what this is all about. If you know what the whole purpose is. And when we're able to do so, that brings true light and inspiration into our lives. I'd just like to end off um, 
every couple that, that, that would get married, they would write a, if they would send an invitation to the Rebbe about their wedding, every, no matter who they were, whether they were Chabad, not Chabad, it makes no difference, they would receive a letter of blessing from the Rebbe. And the letter was always, pretty much always the same thing. Uh, and it said the following, that you should merit to build a home on the foundations of Torah and mitzvahs as they are illuminated by the luminary of Torah, namely the teachings of Chassidus. The blessing the Rebbe was giving to every couple was, don't just set up a home that should be according to the rules. Set up a home that will always be bright. Set up a lighthouse. When your home is bright, that brightness of the home is going to spill out into the street. It's going to spill out into the outside and will even brighten up others that are looking from the outside and seeing the harmony, the beauty, the peace of the Jewish home. And that's going to also inspire them as well. Uh, and that, in a nutshell, is everything about the life of Sarah you need to know. We need to invest our own efforts. God will bless those efforts. But those efforts cannot be limited to the do's and don'ts of Judaism, cannot be limited to intellectual, or even that which transcends our ability to understand, but it's all about the do's and don'ts and all about just the functioning of Judaism. We need to have more than that. We need to have light in our life, which that is available to us through the teachings of Hasidus. Well, thank you, thank you. Thank you for joining us. Any questions? I have one. Yes, please. Uh, how would the Rebbe say that Torah Lishma is different from this uh, clarity, light as clarity? Um, okay, I'm, I'm, uh, Torah Lishma means learning Torah for its own sake, mm -hmm. which would mean that one is learning Torah uh, not with the intention of becoming a scholar, nor they should be able to show off. Mm -hmm. um, and even not with the intention of learning Torah um, for a specific purpose. In other words, he's learning Torah because through learning Torah, he's connecting to God. Mm -hmm. uh, so Torah Lishma is kind of a verb associated with Torah. Okay. It's the way you learn Torah. It's your okay. attitude to learning Torah. I would say that this idea that I was speaking here, that Torah, and specifically Chassidus, brings light to your life, is also uh, what, what area of Torah are you choosing to learn? Okay. Uh, typically, this inspiration doesn't necessarily come from learning law. Law could be very dry. It's important. It's the bread and butter of Judaism. Mm -hmm. They say it's the shelter and nutrition of Judaism, which you must have. Right? If someone is homeless and hungry but has a flashlight, whatever. I mean, it's, it's better than nothing. And it, mm -hmm. it, it might lead him. It might lead him to shelter and to, and to food. Right? But the flashlight's not going to, not, not going to keep him alive. Right? Um, it's actually a beautiful story. I, I'm sorry for keeping you later, but a beautiful story. Actually, I forgot the actual name of this. Uh, th there was a theologian. His name was Hugo. I forgot his last name. He was he was a theologian who lived in England. He was a, he was a Holocaust survivor. He was a teenager during the Holocaust, and he was in, I, I think in Auschwitz. He was a teenager, and he was together with his father. Comes Hanukkah, and his father had basically crafted a menorah. You know, he, he found a little bit of, I don't know, some butter. I don't know what he found over there. He took a little thread from his jacket. He put it into this little cup. And on the first night of Hanukkah, he made the blessing and he lit it. He lit this little candle that burns for maybe 30 seconds or something like that. So this teenager became very angry. Why did he become angry? Not because his father, you know, risked his life to do a mitzvah in a Nazi concentration camp. He said, Dad. You know, that little bit of butter 
could have could have given you a little bit of strength. Why did you waste it on on, on a Hanukkah candle? So he said, Hugo, listen carefully. What Auschwitz has taught me is that the human body can survive without food for a very long time. And it could survive in the freezing rain. It could survive in the cold for a long time. But without hope, we're done. And this candle is what represented the hope, right? Hanukkah. So, so what's the idea? He, he wasn't telling his son, I, I'm, I'm okay with starving another few days. That, that wasn't the point, right? So light is very important. Uh, and therefore, by the way, I would suggest even a person who doesn't even have access or has not yet involved themselves in the bread and butter of Judaism should throw themselves into the light of Judaism. One shouldn't say, hey, I don't know, enough, I don't yet know enough about functioning Judaism. So why am I even dealing with inspirational Judaism? Right? That would be like a, a homeless guy grabbing for the candle instead of the bread and butter and all that type of stuff. And the answer to that is, it's not a conflict. That's not the issue. And on the contrary, perhaps, and I'm pretty sure, if you're going to get a little taste of inspirational Judaism, that will lead your path to functional Judaism as well. The idea is that all three of them are necessary. Functioning Judaism, the internal one, the external one, as well as inspirational Judaism represented by the candle, by the light, these are all equally crucial for Jewish life, not just Jewish survival, but in order to thrive as Jews. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, take care. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you, Rabbi.